Jared Tenler, welcome back to the Business of Betting podcast. It's a pleasure to have you back on. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you're looking to find your edge in sports betting or racing, you'll need to visit the Betfair Hub. From analysis to betting psychology, it has everything that you need. Simply visit betfair.com.au slash hub. Jared Tenler, welcome back to the Business of Betting podcast. It's a pleasure to have you back on. Jake, good to be here, man. So, how's your golf game going? I guess not a lot going on this time of the year with uh, everything going on in the world. Yeah, I was pretty bummed. Actually. I signed up for the U.S. Open qualifier again, um, and was supposed to be playing in three weeks, but yeah, it got canceled. Obviously, uh, I think they're going to reschedule it, but I'm not sure when that's going to happen. And you never know what schedules how how they'll line up. So we'll see what uh, we'll see what happens. So I'm. Sh- it's weird. Of all, I've had 120, 125 different guests and, and people on the show, and people obviously have their preferences, and and a lot of it's aligned with uh, if they're sports betters, they'll like the professional gamblers on that side. If they're horse players, if they're you know, bookmakers, whatever it might be. But it's funny, your name comes up probably uniquely the most out of everyone across all those demographics. It's That's uh, crazy. Yeah, it's strange. And I and I was looking back this morning, um, you know, just doing some basic prep for this. And I was trying to figure out why there's only been one mental coach on all my episodes and a lot of other podcasts. There's either zero or zero. Uh, <laughs> it seems like we're not evolving yet and we're not realizing what the mental side of it really can be if we harness it properly. Yeah, a lot of people like to say that, uh, you know, they're aware of it, they're dealing with it, but they're not. And I would imagine that's across the board, not just in gambling or sports or the fields that you cover. It's a, it is in general. I mean, you know, I've been working a lot more with esports uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, I think I, I probably mentioned it when I was on the show last time, uh, but it's it's definitely expanding there. Uh, I think the competency level is still really low. So what you're getting is a lot of guys like kind of straight out of college with a BA in sports psychology and, you know, they're getting jobs, you know, with, with these sports organizations. Um, you know, all the major sports franchises, franchises have, have people on staff, um, you know, but like even professional golfers, like there's, it's not, I mean, it's definitely ubiquitous, but you know, the degree to which the, the guys are like really open to doing good work. Like I've had, you know, some PGA tour players, who I can't name names, but you know, like guys at that level, it's not just in golf, but sometimes guys at that level, women as well. They are more interested in kind of defending their turf, uh, even though they still have runway still left to get better, um, than they are as uh, kind of truly, you know, actively trying to get better. And it, to me, it's kind of like, you know, the the entrenched corporate, uh, uh, you know, businesses that are, are like still have that startup mentality, right? They're still aggressive at like getting into new verticals and expanding their business and coming up with new ways of operating. And they're just they realize that you either adapt or die. And, and they're willing to do that. And, and I think sometimes um, people at the top are not always willing to, to be as aggressive with that. And especially when you're when you are kind of like your own business, you know, as a, as a sports better, as a trader, um, uh, punter, you know, it, it can be tough to feel like you're like, you know, you don't really know you're the one um, who has to make the decisions uh, versus when it's coming kind of from, from the outside. Uh, sometimes it can be a little bit easier. So I think people have a hard time like really getting over the threshold to take the risks that are necessary. And funny enough, sometimes it's the risk that is not taken that is actually greater than the. Or sorry, it's 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 the 
the risks that you're not taking that are actually uh, far less risky than doing nothing. Like doing nothing is oftentimes the far riskier bet. Yeah, I totally agree. And even just thinking back to teenage years playing Aussie rules football and uh, even just the mindset of different people, you had the, the guys who were you know, really talented and throughout their entire childhood were the best player on the team and probably didn't need to worry about anything other than turning up on the day. Uh, and then you have some other people that were, you know, the white line fever type people that did everything in their power, use every inch of energy and, and what they could, you know, once they got on the field to, to be good. Um, it seems like, you know, in certain categories of, of athletes that do exist, and even, I guess, on the, on the betting side as well, you know, if you do have an immense amount of talent, maybe it's something that often is not necessarily in your wheelhouse in terms of worth considering. It's it's tricky. I mean, when things come too easily, people take it for granted. Uh, when things come too easily, you're not actually developing like the hardened skills you need to actually be able to, you know, push through those 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 bad runs, those challenging times, the failures, the missteps. Um, you know, I've heard you know that NFL GMs are pretty, um, you know, reticent to uh, draft quarterbacks that have not really failed, not really struggled. You know, get the guy that's won a couple national championships and you know won all state in high school and you know, never really lost. Like they don't know really how he's going to handle those losses or those failures. Like they kind of want to see that before, you know, they get into the NFL. So it's kind of very similar. So I wanted to kick off with uh, the work environment just more generally. And obviously it applies to uh, many different fields, including sports and and betting. But pre-COVID, let's say, if we can go back to whenever that was, it feels like a few years ago now. Yeah, yeah. How much time, if any, were you allocating to people thinking about their environment? And that might be, you know, the the sports better that stays at home and has a home office. Were you going through how many screens to have, what size of the screen, what brightness, uh, which lights to turn on during the day, what natural light needs to come in, what type of chair they're using? Were those the types of things that you would even address pre-COVID? No, no. I mean, there are people that do that um, and... I would put them in the category of more of the, like the team environment, the culture kind of, of coach, uh, the ones who are really trying to craft, um, and make sure that, that the environment reinforces all the things that you want. And, and to a degree I will do that, right? It's like, you know, putting up some, uh, you know, verbiage on a wall or signage or, you know, uh, inspirational messages, like things of that sort to the, that your environment is kind of like reflecting the, the ideals and the mentality that you want to have. Uh, but I'd say that's probably like less than 1% of, you know, like the overall work that I actually, it's probably less than a thousandth of a percent of the overall work that I do for me, you know, that like the, the, the meat and potatoes is really in like getting deep into understanding where is the larger, like emotional flaws that force better traders, athletes to make poor decisions when it matters. Okay. Interesting. And, and you mentioned NFL GMs before and, Head coaches, do you think that they also need coaching or can you coach a coach, if that's the right term, or a, or a manager or whoever the person in charge is of a group of players? Is that a field as well that does exist? It does. Uh, yeah. And I think, yes, it definitely exists. No different than, you know, like the, the, the executive coaching exists for, you know, CEOs. Uh, there oftentimes is a skill set in that where, you know, they were former coaches themselves, you know, that they have... They're not usually those people are not like in my role where it's really about like the the head coach's mental performance exclusively. It's also about training them on environment and culture and understanding players and how to do play player analysis and player development and things of that sort. 
Um, I, I do that a little bit more so with the with my esports um, uh, teams because there's just a need for it and there's nobody else. And so it's like, all right, well, I have some knowledge in that area, so I'll raise my hand and, and, and get at it. Um, but for me, like I look at like the the head coach's ability to manage pressure and stress and you know all the things that they have, and you know it doesn't take doesn't uh, you don't have to go too far to find examples of coaches choking under pressure. You know, the one that jumps out to my mind is, uh, you know, Pete Carroll throwing from the one yard line against the Patriots uh, a few years back, um, you know, when you have Marshawn Lynch in the backfield. So, <laughs> uh, you know, th- there's there are coaches that fail all the time. And so, yeah, th- there's a psychological need for that. I haven't actually done any of that work, um, but it certainly is interesting. So let's start with poker. The You must have been following the Gelfond Challenge has been going on and there's a million good examples of things we could talk about within that, but I, I'm curious from your perspective, how do you watch? Some, if you did follow it or watch it or have any engagement with it, how does someone like yourself do that? Are you able to just be a fan and, and watch, or are you thinking of all the different elements? Given for those that haven't seen it, you can go and check it out. But I think it was what twenty five thousand hands uh, of poker, and it just yep. seems like a very interesting, interesting experiment. And from that, I'm sure there's plenty of things that many different people learn obviously the, the the swings and the variants and and just the longevity of the the amount of hands and things like that but how do you watch it or engage with it or, or people in your field those types of things so i i kind of keep in touch with it as a you know here's what something that's happening um you know i i watched a few hands as they were kind of getting down to the finish uh, but mostly i just kind of like kind of keeping up to date with the swings and how it was going and you know kind of looking at uh, phil's messaging to the community and i think he really represented himself very well for those that don't know. And I'll give, you know, a little bit of a spoiler or a cliff note here. Um, at one point very early in the challenge, Phil was down a million dollars and the bet was basically 25,000 hands. Whoever's up, you know, even a dollar, uh, wins. Um, you know, I think Phil was putting up 200 K to uh, his opponents, 100 K, uh, as the side bet plus obviously whatever the profit was. Uh, but very early in the challenge, Phil was down a million dollars. Um, you know, just in terms of like kind of raw profit loss, uh, at the beginning. And so, uh, he ended up taking a f- few days off to figure out what the hell was going on. <laughs> you know, this is a guy that <laughs> it has a family, uh, you know, runs a training site, just launched, uh, an online poker site. So, you know, his, his focus on, on actually playing uh, POO at the highest level of the world is, you know, not, not kind of, uh, first and foremost when he got in. So I think he jumped in, um, expecting to be a little rusty, uh, probably was a lot more rusty than he thought, and uh, I think really needed to work to get his mentality and his game in shape. And yeah, I think he represented himself incredibly well, and was a model for a lot of people in terms of how to handle uh, runs and swings like that. And I think he was saying the right things. My my gut tells me that he was early on, I think, experiencing a lot more emotional pain than he was expressing, uh, which is to be expected. Uh, but I mean, anybody who's down a million dollars, you know, very quickly into a big bet uh, is not going to be uh, had a great time. Take us through what happens in those discussions during that, you know, day off, couple of days off there when he's, I'm guessing he had a coach or he at least had someone he was leaning on, whether it was, you know, his wife or whoever it was. How do you counsel someone in that situation? Is there any good way to go about it or is there steps that could or should have been taken weeks and months prior to basically prepare for if that scenario pops up? Well, I think in ideal circumstances, sure. Yeah. Um, but I think you've got to, you got to look, and I think a lot of people need to take this to heart too. It's like some, sometimes the right answer is just to go do it and and figure it out on the fly. I mean, because for those who are more of the perfectionists, the ones who are going to kind of delay and take a bit too long to kind of get started, uh, sometimes you do just have to throw yourself in there and and, and figure it out, you know, uh, reactively. Because yeah, of course you can be proactive and try to be as 
prepared and buttoned up as possible. But you know, there's a cost to that, and and you know, the opportunity cost has to be calculated too. Um, so I think, given all of the, I understand it in terms of what goes on in Phil's life, it, it just wasn't practical for him to like really prepare perfectly. Um, and and you know, maybe in retrospect, he might have done a few things differently, but that's in retrospect, and I'm sure he's going to have future challenges and. You know, all here, all, uh, off and running. But you know, I think in the in those conversations, at least you know the way that I would you know operate uh, is that we're just being very surgical at identifying all of the individual things that he's been struggling with. You know, whenever you are trying to figure out like uh, how to f- f- stop, like to fix a problem, you got to really under- make sure that you understand it completely. So we're talking about all the thoughts, all the the, the emotional reactions, the things that you're saying out loud, the changes in your, your decision making, the changes in your behavior, the the effect on your sleep, you're trying to map the problem as as clearly as you can and create a, a bunch of line items of all the individual things that need to get corrected, and then you just get at it and you take that, put it together. Uh, I'm sure some of it was just a little bit of time off because when you accumulate a lot of emotion. Uh, there is just kind of only one way for it to go, right? Like to actually reduce that emotionality uh, is not going to happen in, you know, in, in an instant. Uh, it's it's actually, I think, fairly similar to like the buildup of lactic acid in the muscles where, you know, to get rid of it, you really have to do some hardcore treatment or it's just going to take a few days for it to actually just have the body kind of absorb and deal with it. Uh, and to a certain degree, emotionally, it's the same kind of process. So again, we're kind of just trying to be really surgical at identifying all the weaknesses and flaws and come up with corrections for them. So right now, post a challenge like that, and I'm sure many people have had a five, six-figure payday, whatever, hopefully lucky enough to have seven-figure paydays or or months or whatever seasons. In those circumstances, what do you do now when you're coming off probably as high as it gets, You know, just given um, the world as it is right now, the amount of people probably watching, just how the, the challenge went for him? Let's just say the World Series was starting tomorrow. Are you saying don't even bother entering? Are you saying you're on a bit of a, you're on a positive swing here? We've got to continue to uh, treat it the same way, or is it is it something where it's just a new day, start again, refresh, and and forget what just happened? Yeah, the latter. I mean, I wouldn't say entirely forget what just happened. I would say take what you learned and use it as the next kind of building block. Um, you know, everybody listening to this understands you know the probability, and so. What just happened does not predict what is going to happen in either direction. So, uh, you know, as long as he's got the energy, uh, you know, you're going to go go play a big series like the World Series. And uh, if, as long as you're rested and feel strong enough to do that, then, yeah, get at it. Um, you know, it, it, the hangover, uh, you know, positively, you know, I would say just keep an eye out for signs of some, you know, overconfidence, uh, some complacency, uh, you know, edges that you're that are being pushed that are a little bit loose uh and make sure that you're uh you know kind of keeping yourself in check uh but i I don't think the uh the need to um uh, miss a big opportunity is is kind of guaranteed or assured for everybody i think everybody does need to kind of you know be very accurate with themselves and very honest with themselves about the extent to which they're actually you know, like a, a bit too kind of jacked up and on what just happened and, and are now going to be pushing edges and probably gambling a bit more um, than would be, would be ideal. I'm not saying that you can't, you know, kind of push edges that you might not normally, but, you know, if they're too far outside of your strategy, then you're essentially gambling and, you know, eventually it's going to turn on you. If someone did have a five-figure payday and they did everything right, or at least they were, you know, encountering adversity, got through it and, and did have a win, let's say, whatever sport or, or trading or whatever it might be, 
is that a learning moment that you can use in 18 months time for example or is it something that you just tuck away and hopefully um, you don't necessarily need to refer to it at all no no I mean I think every every accomplishment big and small uh, needs to be tucked away and you know valued proportionally um, sometimes people are far uh, too under appreciative of the things that they that they've done um, you know a lot of people have that kind of you know it's never good enough mentality they're just always kind of just like what's next, what's next, what's next. And they're never actually kind of looking back um, and solidifying the gains that they've made, the things that they've learned, the skills that they've acquired, the perspective that they have on either on their, on their betting, their game, uh, themselves, their, their opponents, to make sure that they're kind of keep leveling up. And because and, all of that does create stability and some sense of solidness for when you do inevitably struggle. Uh, you know, the, the analogy that I would give is like climbing a mountain, right? A lot of what we're trying to do is, is just keep climbing these bigger and bigger peaks uh, and you know you could either free solo it right meaning that you're climbing without rope and if you slip <laughs> you're gonna f- die um, you know obviously watch that movie uh, if, if you haven't seen it uh, yeah. free solo saying yeah exactly um, so uh, but but you know emotionally mentally that that's how it feels for a lot of people so that then when they actually do slip up and they have some setbacks they have some failures it does feel like they kind of hit rock bottom which is usually perceptual bullshit uh, because they, they're, they're just not aware of all of the things that they are still really competent in, still solid about the accomplishment they've, they've had. You know, and so they, they start questioning things about their performance, about their skill set, about their industry or about their opportunity uh, that are just excessive. Now, I'm not saying don't you know, reevaluate your opportunity, but do so in a practical way and do so at a time when you're not – you know, emotionally compromised, right? That's not the, the right time to do it. You want to be doing it from a perspective of, of strength and a perspective of weakness. So when you do recognize all the gains that you've made and you kind of have that at your back, it actually means that you're climbing with anchors into the mountain so that when you do fall, you fall and you're kind of caught and you're not, you're not falling that far. Yeah, it's interesting because so let's just say you are climbing one of those peaks and you've got a, you know, a higher mountain to climb ultimately uh, in terms of career and life and aspirations and whatever. If you're the kind of person that gets to the ledge and stands up and, you know, yelling, screaming with happiness, pumping your fist, you know, that type of reaction versus someone who's very solemn and says, look, you know, I just, you know, this is ledge number one. I've got 10 ledges to go. I can't get too excited. Is there a benefit or an advantage or disadvantage even to being either of those? Or is it trying to train yourself to be somewhere in the middle, perhaps? I, I think the optimal is that you feel proportionally good for what you just accomplished for the amount of time period that you can, that's not excessive. And so, yeah, that doesn't sound like very specific, but like, let's just say, you know, it is the World Series or it is, a, you know, a, a big season of, of horse racing. And at the end of it, you know, it's sort of like a forced like three month break. So, yeah, you can revel in it if you've done really, really well. If you made more money than you ever had, you know, before, if you won some some titles, you know, some won some bracelets uh, or even just one. Um, yeah, like go celebrate, like have some fun, take a week, take two weeks, enjoy yourself. I'm not saying like, you know, spend all your money in that time period. I'm just saying like revel in, in the success that you had, because when, when you have success like that, it, it is not just about the result. I think that's where people get, you know, a little bit kind of misconstrued. It is confirmation for everything you have done that led to that point. And yeah, you know, there's got to be some luck that's involved in, in those two industries, but not obvi- obviously for some sports. But you know, the, the, the reality is that when you are confirming everything you've done before, it doesn't mean that you can't still learn, you can't still get better. 
but at least shows that what you were doing is working. And that provides a, a good boost of more stable motivation, stable confidence to move you forward. If you don't have you know, a two-month break and you have like four days before you're going to get back at it, something big, like take a PGA Tour uh, player who uh, wins a major you know, and then has to go play the next week. Like how do you, you know, recalibrate? Like you know, there what they may do is like take a day, maybe two at most to celebrate that, especially if it's their first one. Um, and then, you know, get ready for the next event. Like you want to be trying to get out there, trying to win that one. And then at some point there's going to be a break and that's when you can kind of take the step back and, uh, and have a little bit more kind of reveling. But it, um, I, I think, I do think it is really, really important for people to take a step back um, and, 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 and just enjoy some of that success. Right. And for some that is really, really hard. And, and if you just say, oh, like I can't do that. Uh, it doesn't feel natural fine, learn, right? It's a muscle like anything else. Like you can learn anything. It's not like it's the law of your nature that you can't do that. There may be patterns in you that automatically kind of force you um, out of that mentality uh, and which, which makes it difficult. I mean, perfectionist or perfectionism is, is kind of like a, you know, public enemy number one for that because invariably you are constantly, you know, always looking at what's next. Uh, but it, it's it, on some level, it's a skill. On some level, you know, there's a deeper pattern that has to get fixed, but you can uh, certainly learn it. How does or where does goal setting fit within this? And if we take, you know, Phil's challenge we're referencing earlier, what if he said, "I want to win by you know, hundred thousand or two hundred thousand or three hundred thousand," and doesn't achieve it necessarily, but you know, in hindsight, maybe there's a there's a better way to look at it. Does that factor into how you approach these types of situations? I mean, so for me, like you know, goal setting. Uh, there's a lot of layers to, to and nuances of goal setting. A lot of people uh, are not very good at it, um, and then that like invariably kind of affects their, you know, emotional state in in pretty dramatic ways, uh, especially when there's a lot of variance involved. So I think what you have to do is you have to set goals if there is you know high levels of variance in there, where you have like you know what you think is a reasonable target. Um, you know, it's going to happen, you know, if, if, if variance is fairly neutral, you know, that's the target that you're really aiming for. Variance is really in your favor. You set a high target. Variance is like, you know, hard against you. You set a low target. Now in Phil's case, where you're trying to win a challenge like that, variance is still hard against you. You know, your goal is to win by $1, right? Um, you know, not by, uh, uh, not assuming that you're going to lose, right? Oh, it's like, it's a, it's a win if I lose by only a thousand if variance is, you know, against me. Like, that's not the way you want to set the goal. But, but I think it's, a, it's, it is important to set, you know, at least kind of three different targets because what happens is if you run badly and you've got this big goal out there, you know, people are smart, right? You, you know, you know, how much you might be making, you know, in terms of on turnover, you might, how much you're making, uh, you know, per week or per hour uh, or per bet. And so if you've dug a hole, like you can tell pretty quickly that, uh, you know, th that your goal is gone. And so then your motivation drops and now you become a little bit more hopeless and now you, you know, lose a little bit more motivation and your betting becomes like there's a ways in which those those like big goals can really kind of hang over you and affect your short term performance. So if you have set up at the beginning, you know, some variety, then like those goals should always be motivating for you. Like there's always going to be a target that you can still reach so that the low end of that goal variance is tough, you know, really hard against you, like you still see a way for you to accomplish something, right? And and so that's like kind of it from a result standpoint. But I think it's really important to also be setting more process-oriented goals where you might say, all right, um, I'm going to evaluate my my play, my decision-making, and I've got it scaled. So let's say A, B, A game, B game, C game. 
And I want to have, you know, like an average rating of a, you know, like an A minus over, you know, a one month period of time. And, you know, you've got like good details. So it's not like you're just, you know, pulling guesses out of your ass, right? Your, your A game represents decision making that looks like this, B game, same. And so you can look at the end of the day, like, all right, what percentage of your bets uh, or your decisions were, you know, in those categories and you give yourself, give yourself a grade. Or you might say, um, you know, you might do that with regards to just focus. Uh, you might look at just putting in the raw hours if, if motivation is something that's more difficult for you and just putting in the hours and putting in the time is, is, is key. Then, you know, you set some, you know, kind of process goals around around putting in those hours. Uh, but, you know, it, like it, I do think it's important when you have those big result oriented goals, you have the process pieces behind it, because then if you do fail, then you also have things that you could still have more control of. You could still have things that you could build on. And then the failure gets kind of buffered by that. So it's not quite as deep. And, and it gives you something that you can then, you know, kind of work off of for the next goal. Because ultimately, goal setting is a skill in itself. And if you're bad at it, then that means that you're unlikely to reach your goals or your goals were too easy to get. Either way, right, getting better at the skill of, of setting goals means getting better at the skill of self-evaluating your own capability, evaluating the opportunities that are in front of you, and then being able to kind of turn that into some estimation which is ultimately what a goal is. It's an estimate of what you think you can accomplish um, and, 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 you know, kind of go after it. Now, if you're somebody who's a, you know, golfer or an athlete, we has like titles that are in play and those become your goals. So that's not an estimation of a, of a goal. It's like a very specific target that you're trying to acquire or, you know, poker player trying to uh, win a bracelet. But if you're setting money goals, uh, then those are estimations, no different than, you know, a, a, a company setting, you know, their, uh, their projections for the year, for the projections for the first quarter. So then in general, it sounds like we don't want any goal-setting approach that might be bad even to impact the decision-making and the process part, but there are instances, it seems like, where you know, if it's a World Series final table and you're um, you know, short-stacked or whatever, then there are certain things that might be acceptable within that type of framing. No doubt, no doubt. And I think we, use, we end up seeing you know, at the, certainly the main event where uh, you know, the short-stack comes in, uh, has already locked up a million dollars, and the most likely scenario is they're not going to make any more. So they come in, you know, with a lot of freedom. It's all upside. Their goal is nothing. It's like whatever, whatever happens is great. You know, then you have the guy who's the chip leader who, who might come in with a bit more pressure feeling like, you know, for him, if he would walk away with anything less than a million or anything uh, less than, than, you know, uh, ninth place would be, uh, you know, a tragedy. So, you know, they can sometimes kind of come in there a bit too tight and protecting feeling like something's already theirs. Uh, I mean, we all have, you know, hundreds of examples of uh, professional sports teams who have, um, you know, tried to protect a lead. So, yeah, the, the, the perspective that you have on what you're trying to accomplish and the state that you're in and the, in the road to accomplishing that, uh, you know, can be really uh, uh, can cause a lot of variation in your performance. And then you can kind of use those problems to better understand some patterning you know, that may affect you, affect you elsewhere in smaller ways, like, you know, the idea of protecting a lead, right? Obviously, it shows up in a big way in a final table where you're chip leader. Uh, but how might that show up in a smaller way, let's say, you know, month over month when, you know, you've had like the best, you know, you've had a good run, you know, 20 days into the month, and you're like, eh, maybe I'll shut it down so I can lock up the best month of, of the year, or maybe I'll just start like betting, uh, you know, a little bit less or playing a little bit less poker to kind of just... Uh, sneak out and that that doesn't seem like that big a deal to you because obviously you know the money says otherwise but 
you know, you're still bleeding opportunity and, and that's not an optimal way of handling it if, if, you know, that, that issue wasn't there. Yeah, absolutely. And I have one unrelated strange question, perhaps, and maybe not a topic that you talk about. I certainly don't read or hear much about it, but using drugs, is it something that is covered much in this space? And, and obviously, you know, you think about some, whether it's poker, whether it's a sports betting, people are grinding double digit hour days, multiple days in a row, you know, in poker anyway, online, you can have many tables, many screens, all that type of thing. Is it something within the industries that you've worked within or, or have been a part of that it's commonly discussed and approached sensibly, or is it something that's a bit more taboo and, and isn't necessarily addressed at all? Do you mean like in terms of taking like prescription medication, like Ritalin or Adderall or Daphanil? Yeah, yeah, even like you hear about, you know, I'm a lawyer and people going to do exams and either studying and throughout their, um, you know, before the final exam, essentially doing, you know, Adderall, whatever it might be to mm-hmm. allow them to do that. Then even during an exam, take certain things or if it's uh, even stronger than that or even just generally, like whether it's to mellow out or other things that, that may be possible. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely not talked about publicly that often. Um, it definitely certainly is in some place. And then it's also talked about in circles or, you know, in kind of more live settings. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist. So I can't prescribe medication. It's not something I, uh, I, I certainly advocate my clients to figure out how to create that kind of competency or that level of acuity, um, without drugs. Cause obviously then you have more control. Um, but when they are prescribed it and they're using it, then you know, try to help to balance it out so that they're not um, uh, ultimately doing it in a counterproductive way. You know, there's a fairly famous example a few years ago when uh, Phil Helmuth said he uh, used Adderall at a final table and it said it messed him up big time. And I'm not surprised because you know Adderall can make you focus, but for somebody like Phil uh, who's never used it, uh, or I, I don't think I'd used it in that setting before. Uh, what it can do is remove creativity. It can remove that kind of that that extra sense of that extra feel. Uh, so it it actually was a, a big deterrent for him to actually be able to get in the zone and be at his best. Uh, so certainly it's it's not like it's a a holy grail. Uh, it is for some people. Like if you actually have ADD, uh, then not using uh, those medications uh, is is like um, you know. Uh, I guess like swimming without shorts on. <laughs> you're, just, you know, you, you're not using uh, you know technology available that's going to make you better. So I talk to a lot of different people who all reiterate: you got to find your edge, and you got to find something that's contrary to what other people are doing, and, and so on and so forth. And it strikes me, based on what we've you know discussed earlier, that having that emotional control or that emotional uh, ability to to adapt to certain situations is a skill set that isn't being fully utilized by, you know, the masses and, and obviously those at the, the tip of the sword as well. Is that something that can significantly enhance what you're currently doing? Or it seems like there's only a limited amount of time in the day. There's a limited amount of, you know, domain expertise you can have. You, you can only know so much about certain things. But on the emotional side, it does seem like something that if explored and addressed properly can be a, a, a big level up situation. No doubt. And I think anybody who's listening to this that hasn't done that work before, what I would say is um, just evaluate how good you are when you're at your, when you're at your best and at your worst. Right? For some people, that gap is really wide. For some people, that, that gap is fairly narrow. But the question becomes, when you are at your worst, are you losing money? Like for some poker players, they are so good in the games that they're playing, even when they're in their C game, they're still making money. So they're 
motivation to work on the mental side is not nearly as high as somebody who's actually like losing money in those spots. And especially if, if the gap between your best and your worst is really wide, then you have to ask yourself the question, how much money are you losing doing and doing things and making decisions that you know are wrong? Because that, that, that's, that's what ends up happening at the back end, right? And, and in my experience, almost in all situations, those types of mistakes are caused because of some mental and emotional variation, some cause in, on that side of the coin, which means that you've done all this, all this work to develop this edge and develop competencies, but you're not able to utilize that edge because your emotions are blocking you from being able to do that. So if you continue to learn more and more, guess what? That problem is not going to get better. It's going to get worse because the gap between your best and your worst is just going to keep getting wider. And then you're going to get in the situation where you're going to rely on getting hot. You ha- you're going to have to take you know, time off because it's so energy intensive for you to escape you know, your, your, your emotions in that regard and be able to be consistently at your best that you're just not going to be able to do it very often. And you're going to have these big swings, these big ups and downs in terms of your, your performance because like, like athletes would. You're, you're, the gap between your best and your worst is just too wide. You have to shrink that in order to develop more, more consistency and more, more stability. And the only way to do that is to correct the mental and emotional flaws that are causing you to make those, those boneheaded, stupid, obvious mistakes. Right? They are not caused by you lacking knowledge. Right? You, you, the fact that you know exactly what you should have done in the moment or immediately afterwards shows you that you you don't have anything to learn from a tactical or strategic standpoint. It, it, you have to remove the emotion that is blocking your higher brain function from functioning properly in order for you to access that knowledge in those moments. That, that's the problem. So you know, being able to like, actually do that work uh, for some people is, is the only way that they're actually going to be either consistent or uh, able to make money. Is there some form of measurement for all of that? Obviously, there are in other things where you can you could probably sit someone down and give them a, a bunch of hands and, and put cards on the table and say, you know, what are we doing in this situation? What are we doing in that situation? You can probably kind of assess someone's acumen when it comes to certain elements. Um, what about when it comes to this type of thing? Have you found anything that is useful in order to A, measure and B, assess on an ongoing basis? No. <laughs> uh, it's it's self-assessment. Um you know, or you've got good friends around you who can uh, get you to wake up. Interesting. Okay, so you mentioned esports before. I'm curious, age-wise, is there anything you found from that perspective? Are the younger generation more amenable? And, and obviously, anyone can play esports. There can be, you know, older people, of course. But just in your experience so far, has that been anything, uh, anything meaningful come out of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, had some pretty big success already. Um, you know. Uh, Something a game called Dota, which is has the the game that has the biggest prize pool in the world, uh, a tournament called the International. Uh, last year, the prize pool was uh, thirty five million dollars. Uh, first place won fifteen million. Um, my team finished second. They won four point eight. Uh, but two years prior to that, they actually won twelve point eight million. Um, another team uh, in a game called Counter Strike. Uh, they won something called the Intel Grand Slam, which means that they won four big events. Uh, before anybody else won four big events. So it was kind of this like contest over uh, uh, kind of the season. And they won a million-dollar bonus as a result of that. We're the number one team uh, in the world for a while. Uh, the League of Legends team won uh, four North American championships sequentially in 2018, 2019. Uh, and, you know, I, I know for sure that I played a part, right? Just like any good team, 
uh, you know, uh, everyone plays a role. My role was maybe, you know, anywhere between two and 10%, you know, depending on situation, but uh, certainly, yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly, you know, the, the team, the Dota team winning the international, you know, the circuit, the situation for them, both in the year that they won and the year that they finished second, there was an upper, it basically was like a double elimination bracket. And so if you were, you know, they had placed in the, in the upper bracket, um, in 2017, they were not the, the, the number one seed coming out of groups. Um, and then they lost in their first round and were immediately in, in a situation where they could not lose another match or they were out of the tournament. Um, and, and, you know, being number one, having lost, uh, was pretty gutting. And so they had to, um, dig deep and kind of get their shit together uh, and grind through the lower bracket and basically play double the amount of, uh, of, of, of games in order to get to the finals that the team that went through the upper bracket did. Uh, and so, yeah, in both years, both last year and uh, in, that, in 2017, they had to do that. And so I think, you know, my, my value there was huge, right? Because any, any uh, misstep and they were out of the tournament and, and certainly those first couple games where they were trying to, um, get their footing back uh, w- w- was really big. Um, you know, the Counter Strike team um, had some uh, new players and new coach come come involved, and uh, but you know, there was um, for them just a need to figure out like how they played their best. Right? What what was the key to unlocking? You know, uh, I should say all of these games are five player games. So for me, most of my work up until uh, uh, Coaching uh, Team Liquid is the name of the organization that all these teams are under. Uh, coaching uh, with Team Liquid, um, I had always worked with individuals. Uh, sometimes I'd worked with teams of poker players, but you know, still doing individual work and, and a little bit of kind of group work. But now we're actually working with five individuals, a coach, maybe sometimes a manager, an assistant, um, and and trying to get everybody on the same page in terms of um, their communication, um, understanding how to like unlock the talents of all the individual players how they best work together both in and out of the game. You know, these were some of the environmental things I was mentioning uh, at the outset that, you know, I kind of was able to bring in and help them to figure out um, how they play their best. And so that was uh, the big thing for the, the Counter-Strike team. And then, you know, the League of Legends team, a uh, bunch of different issues coming, kind of coming and going, but, uh, you know, some motivational stuff, individual player performance, uh, you know, getting the, the, the staff and the coaching staff to really understand how to uh, develop uh players and 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 improve uh, in a very efficient sequential manner uh was big in that so yeah it's been uh, it's been fun um you know doing that kind of work it's definitely different and you know it's it's uh caused me to be putting on a lot of a lot of travel miles prior to uh coronavirus but um you know it's actually nice to be home and not traveling right now so uh not the, not the worst thing in the world I get to work with these guys remotely and you know it can still be just as effective what are some of the major differences? Is it much the same as a golfer or a you know a poker player, sports gambler who's at home in the office, uh, or are there you know similarities? How does it how does it stand up uh, against those others? Yeah, it it certainly is uh, the same in terms of performance, in terms of the types of issues that can emerge. Um, everybody's different. Everybody's needs are different. Everybody's uh, problems are different. Um, and at the end of the day, it just comes down to you know each person's individual receptivity and openness to doing the work. Uh, the difference with Team Liquid is that the organization is the one paying me, not the individual players. So, you know, the players are not forced to do it. And if they were, that would actually be problematic. So what I've had to do and really um, has been, you know, partially the challenge is like developing trust with, you know, some people who are more resistant. Uh, you know, there's uh, one player on, on the Counter-Strike team who I've worked with for four years now. Um, and he's done some amazing work. But, you know, when I first started working with him, I think he was, you know, 19 or 20 and, um, you know, hadn't had 
didn't really have any, you know, perspective or knowledge and, you know, doing mental game work and, you know, was rightfully resistant and, and not resistant, but just uh, didn't really understand it. Um, you know, thought it was sort of the like, uh, oh, so I'm the one with the problem. So that's why I got to talk to you kind of thing. Um, not the, oh, you're the guy that actually can help me be better. Um, and but over time, like I've kind of built up that trust. And, you know, so now it's uh, it's cool because the guys, um, you know, are all uh, pretty open and, you know, they sort of see the value and uh, are willing to do the work. And the same issues with, you know, overconfidence going into a tournament, uh, performance anxiety, going on tilt because you, you know, you should have won a round or a, or a tournament and you didn't because of, you know, crazy things happening and just, you know, variance in performance. All that stuff is pretty much the same as it applies to, to everyone else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, again, each person is going to have their own their own thing. But yeah, you just go down the list of the major mental game issues from fear and greed and overconfidence to loss of confidence to, you know, motivational issues and boredom and burnout and focus issues and, you know, dealing with social media and having, you know, good balance in your life and proper training regimen. And, you know, these guys are professionals. I mean, they work really hard. And um, some of them are working harder than some athletes because they um, are young. They don't know any better. They love it. And, you know, they think the way to get better to get better is to play 14 hours a day and then they do. Um, so yeah, at the end of the day, we're all people first and then what we do second. And so because we're all people and we share, you know, 99.999% of our DNA with each other, there just is not that much diversity that exists in the types of issues that we'll experience. You know, what, what the different, where the diversity is, is in the application of, you know, uh, the strategy, um, or in the types, uh, the ways in which, you know, the issues will show up. Right. Like there's a language all to it. There's a culture. There's a timing. Um, you know, there's a pacing uh, that is just in the inherent diversity of all of these different competitive arenas. Uh, but like I said, we're people first. So, you know, pick the industry and you'll you'll see the same stuff. And you, you mentioned balance there in the corporate world. It seems like things have gone from, you know, industrial workers and, and no balance at all, potentially in uh, a certain period of time to, you know, you need work-life balance and you want to work at Facebook and, and Google and these places and you'll have sleeping pods and whatever else and all that type of thing to now or even more recently, it seems like it might be going the other way uh, more so than anything and, and figuring out the balance situation isn't as simple as it was. How does it apply in your world? Is there is there an easy trick to it when it comes to balance or is it is it not that simple? It's not that simple because balance is a function of what it is that you're balancing with, right? Like, See, it's all about your goals, and and we could say the same thing about about discipline, right? You need to be balanced, and you need to be disciplined as much as your goals will allow, right? If you have huge goals, then you know the way in which your personal life balance is going to look is different than somebody that has small goals, and it should. Same with discipline, right? You don't need to be more disciplined than is necessary to achieve your goals. You don't want to be. That's 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 like constrictive. You know that doesn't make any sense, right? Now. That person's drive and motivation to accomplish something really big is going to carry them forward and allow them to not get as burned out uh, than, than somebody else that, that wouldn't because their drive and their motivation is going to be much more relentless. That doesn't mean that they can't just go relentlessly without taking breaks and without balancing um, the need to recuperate. Right? That's a necessity because that's how you continue to, to – to level up and get stronger and develop no different than an athlete in the gym or in the pool or running or wherever they are, right? Muscles will break down uh, just the same way, or your mind will break down in the same way that your muscles will. So, you know, the need for that is, is necessary. And sometimes, you know, people need to uh, do other things. Uh, they need to be with their family. They need to be with their friends. They need to travel. 
you know, they need to go out for a good meal, go out partying, like whatever it is that you need to kind of help that kind of reset so that you're better, uh, you know, the next day, that's what it is. Some people need it in bigger chunks, right? So they're completely unbalanced, like, you know, NFL football players would be for nine months. And then, you know, they're balanced the other way uh, for the other uh, three months out of the year. Or uh, some people are looking for balance on a much more consistent, ongoing basis. So how do you create that? Right. There is individual formulas that can be created, but, you know, on the whole, you know, your measuring stick as to whether or not you're balanced or not to me is, are you achieving your goals? And those might not be just exclusive to, you know, your professional industry. They also may be in terms of your personal goals, too. Right. So that's that's the, the art of kind of juggling. I think it's much more about juggling than it is about balance, like balance. You know, if you kind of picture like the scales of justice, right. How do you create those two things to to be equal? It's not about equality, right? You're not having equal amounts of personal time with equal amounts of work time. If you're trying to, if you're trying to, you know, win a World Series of Poker bracelet, or you're trying to, you know, make a million dollars betting. If you're trying to, um, you know, win a major, you know, esports title or win a professional uh, golf tournament, right? And you haven't done that before, then you need to be working in an unbalanced way than most people, you know, who work normal nine to five jobs would view. Um, so. But that's why you've chosen it, right? Like you've chosen it because you're, you're out there trying to do something great. And if you're trying to do something great, then to other people, you're going to look obsessive and you're going to look compulsive and you're going to look unbalanced and, you know, like you're not taking care of yourself. But there's a ways of doing it professionally uh, that still allow you to uh, uh, do it without compromising your own health. Because if you're not healthy and you're not strong, then you are going to kind of decompromise and, and, and kind of burn out. Um, so, you know, you want to be pushing your edges uh, but understanding kind of how to back off and rest and recuperate and be stronger for it. And one final area I wanted to touch on related to this was just the mindfulness aspect. And, you know, obviously people think of meditation, uh, breathing exercises, yoga, whatever it might be. Is there, is it a non-downside type thing where, you know, if you're going to do it, it doesn't seemingly have any issues rather than time if it doesn't have an upside? But Or is it further that, that did you think it's very worthwhile and it should be part of any different regimen? I mean, no, it's not like it's a requirement. Um, you know, meditation, mindfulness, tools to build focus, tools to build awareness. Um, some people, I, I think in some circles, it's oversold. It's looked at as a solution. But at the end of the day, like what's, what is real, right, is that you can use any activity as a tool for suppression of deeper issues, right? So yoga, exercise, any of these like nutrition, people can be a bit psychotic and go overboard with any of these quote, like healthy activities. And what they end up doing is they, they use that as a way of uh, releasing negative emotion, blocking out those emotions rather than actually doing the work to resolve them, correct them and eliminate them. So yes, they are tools, right? Yes, they can be productive and healthy, but there's lots of ways to skin a cat and you know, it doesn't have to be that way. So we didn't touch on going on tilt and we didn't touch on, you know, anxiety in much detail, all those different things. We talked about that the first time around. There's plenty of great podcasts where you talk about it out in the world. And, and obviously you had a podcast back in the day that plenty of people will probably <laughs> go back and listen to. And and your books are free. Tell us, jaredtenlapoka.com slash free. Audible books, right? They're both free? Yeah. Um, Amazon still is uh, pushing free audiobooks uh, pretty hard. So, yeah, the Mental Game of Poker 1 and 2, um, yeah, just go to jaredtendlerpoker.com backslash free, and there's links uh, where you can uh, click through and get the audiobooks for free. Um, certainly in the corona world right now, it's a quick and easy way to get it. Uh, I think they've had some issues with the soft covers getting out, but 
obviously it's on ebook as well. Awesome. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Jared. It's a lot of fun. I know people get a lot out of it and it's often, not often, it's always a undercovered area. So I appreciate stealing 45, 50 minutes of your time and I'm sure everyone will uh, will enjoy it. And until next time, appreciate it, my friend. Thanks, Jake. Be well, man.